From the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science, this is Cookies, a podcast about technology security and privacy. On this podcast, we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives, from the way we connect with each other, to the way we shop, work, and consume entertainment. And we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack, but they can also be something that takes your data. We take our mobile phones everywhere we go, and it's become scary easy for services and apps to collect information about our movements. But there are limits to what these technologies can do. They work best outdoors. Our guests today, Jan Schwarzneider and Colleen Josephson, recently wrote a fascinating piece for Princeton's blog, Freedom to Tinker, about how a new technology embedded in the most recent generation of Apple iPhones has the technology to track the owner's movements down to the inch indoors. Jan was recently a visiting associate research scholar at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. He's now an assistant professor and faculty fellow at the Courant Institute for Mathematical Sciences at New York University. Colleen is a doctoral student in electrical engineering at Stanford University. Let's get started. Jan, Colleen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Great to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how your phone has tracked you in recent years before this new technology came about? So when you say tracking, uh, I'm going to assume that you mean location tracking. And location tracking, as we know it, has been using GPS satellites primarily, uh, where the signal from the satellite talks to a GPS chip on your phone, and then it can localize you within a few meters. So, you know, your phone is going to be a dot and the goal is to put that dot on a map representing where you are currently located in the world and one limitation with gps is that it can have limited accuracy so for example in cities there are a lot of tall buildings and those can obstruct satellite signals which leads to inaccuracies in your location so more recently Location APIs, such as the one that Google provides, they can use sources of additional information, such as signals from cell towers or Wi-Fi access points to increase location accuracy, especially in situations where GPS signals uh, are not quite accurate enough to locate you accurately. So Jan, your phone tracks you in ways that you want it to track you, and it tracks you in ways that you may not be aware of. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, um, and especially the ways that you're not expecting is something that is being pervasive even more today with all the new technology. So kind of stepping back from this question in terms of just tracking, in terms of understanding what our expectations are in different settings, this is something that I work on in my own research, uh, understanding societal norms and users' privacy expectations when it comes to these technologies. So a lot of the times you might expect a technology that you're familiar with uh, to behave in, in a certain manner, but really uh, in, in, the, in the background, it actually uh, does other things that uh, you might not expect. And location tracking is one example of that, which is uh, something that Many of us are actually kind of familiar with with different apps like the weather app or some other uh, scenarios where it actually makes sense that uh, a particular system will require 
to need your locate to need to know your location in order to provide you with some service. However, as uh, this technology become available, there are other uh, ways that the developers of those systems essentially can utilize this information. For example, by sending it to third parties uh, for aggregation and analysis about you, something that we hopefully di- will discuss more today. So, Colleen, existing technologies can track your location outdoors a lot more easily than indoors. Why is that? Sure. Uh, phones have difficulty tracking location indoors, primarily because GPS and cell signals have low strength indoors. Wi-Fi signals can offer a little bit of help here, but the accuracy is limited because Wi-Fi networks are designed for communication, not location tracking. So we've got this new technology. I recently bought an Apple 11 edition, and it's got this new chip in it. What is this chip, and what does it do? Why would I benefit from it? As we discussed, phones have some difficulty tracking location indoors, And what the UltraBideband chip does is it offers uh, a solution to some of these indoor location woes. So the ultra-wideband part of the name comes from the fact that these chips communicate using a very wide bandwidth of 500 megahertz or more. So for comparison, a typical Wi-Fi channel is only going to be about 20 megahertz. And the ultra-wideband nature of this is important because ultra-wideband chips enable us to do accurate ranging. Ranging is something that's similar to echolocation in that it measures the time of flight between when your phone emits a ping and when it arrives at a receiver. So using that information, we know the speed that RF waves travel, so we can use that time of flight to infer how far away you are in one dimension. The high bandwidth here is helpful because it's gonna fight something called multi-path interference. And multi-path is when the signal bounces off lots of surfaces in the environment. So you're gonna receive duplicate copies at the receiver. And this is a problem because multiple copies can collide and interfere with each other, which makes it difficult to get clean, noisy data. So multi-path can cause your ranging data to be noisy. And what this ultra-wideband lets you do is transmit really, really short impulses, which makes it less likely for these multipath signals to collide with each other. So now you'll have much less noisy ranging data. I guess when you have bad ranging data, what it's going to lead to is, for example, if you ever use a map app and you open it up and there's this circle of uncertainty surrounding where you are. Mm-hmm. and over time, uh, usually gets a little bit better and the circle gets smaller and smaller until uh, we're pretty sure where you are. But if you're in a situation with a lot of multipath, that's, there's a limit to how small that circle can be. Mm. And what the ultra wideband chip does is it lets you shrink that circle of certainty to smaller than it's ever been before. So basically now instead of you know, I think a traditional map app is going to locate you within, in the best case, one to three meters maybe. But now this location certainty is going to be within centimeters. So that could have some really good consumer benefits, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of really great opportunities. I think 
the most compelling one is figuring out where you are within a complicated environment. So streets are pretty wide. You don't need to know too much about where you are to navigate effectively. But let's say that you go to a store and you want to find exactly where a particular product is. So this centimeter level accuracy can let you find a particular product. Or um, let's say that you're in an office and you attach, you know, a ultra wideband chip to an important piece of equipment that gets easily lost. Then you could use this uh, ultra wideband infrastructure to find this lost piece of equipment. I think if you take it into the home, think about you know losing your remote. Now you could get you know what this system would enable is basically telling you exactly where that lost remote is. So no more tearing up the house. So that could be you know really useful. But, but there's another side to this too, right? I mean, they're not necessarily doing this all for the consumer's benefit. Yeah, definitely. And one of the questions is, once you, as a consumer, get out of it what you're expecting, what does the company do with that data afterwards? And I think that's something that Jan might have a bit to say about. Thanks, Colin. And yeah, absolutely. And what we see today, and that's really what got me interested in, in, in this project, is really how those technologies are being introduced without actually asking the questions uh, about what would be a more appropriate uh, in different scenarios. So obviously, uh, you know, describing a scenario where you walk into a shop and uh, it points you to a particular product or helps you navigate that environment, that's great, but maybe you don't want to be uh, you know, you don't want others to know that you went to that particular shop and actually looked at that particular product. This information obviously can be then collected, uh, analyzed, and then maybe based on that, uh, sent or, uh, to an advertising agency that will suddenly will pop, uh, well, fill your phone with, with advertising about uh, those particular products or related products of things maybe you didn't expect uh, suddenly being offered to you. So certainly can... Uh, uh, be, have negative effect on uh, consumer privacy and something that we should be really aware of. And what's happening right now is that uh, without actually consulting to the larger extent and, with, and just with flashy uh, scenarios that essentially uh, provide interesting uh, benefits uh, to the consumer, but also kind of hiding, as you would say, the other part of it, uh, which we certainly have to have a debate about as a community. Those are not easy questions, but certainly uh, we're at the point where, where they should be discussed. So, so let me get this straight. So if I go to the grocery store and I walk into the tomato sauce aisle and I see a specific brand and I begin to reach for it and I stand there for maybe a couple of seconds and I don't pick it up and I move on, my phone might be sending the store a signal saying, this person considered this brand of tomato sauce and I might get a coupon for that tomato sauce? Yeah, that's within the realm of possibility. I would hesitate to say that it's your phone doing this. Mm. It's more like your phone is sending out signals anyway. And then the store is going to have to have pieces of equipment that are listening for these signals. And then by... Uh, analyzing this information across all the different listening points, the store can figure out which brand of tomato sauce that you've been looking at and use that information to push you coupons. 
it can't do that now very easily, right? No, that's correct. It's there are some research systems that uh, you know have been done to try and introduce these types of capabilities. Uh, the primary reason that we don't have it yet is because it's not in our infrastructure at the moment. And the introduction of the ultra wideband chip in the iPhone is the beginning of the popularization of ultra wideband, I think. So shortly after Apple announced this chip, a really well-known networking equipment provider, Cisco, announced that their wireless access points will have ultra-wideband chips in them in the upcoming future. So now we have both the phone having an ultra-wideband chip, but also the infrastructure, the access points that can be installed around a store and listening to the signals that your phone emits. So once a store buys this access point that has the ultra wideband capability built in, they could potentially start using information emitted from phones like the iPhone to track you around their store. Uh, just uh, uh, to follow up, really, uh, what really got me uh, fascinated by this was that this, as Colleen was saying, not a new problem that engineers and technologists were trying to solve. Uh, so certainly, uh, there were a few uh, proposals of how to enable indoor localization. However, what this particular technology allows you to do is essentially, once you have that chip, all you need is uh, a router, an access point that supports that technology. As, as Colleen was saying, one of the major manufacturers of those are already buying into this, so they certainly would support it soon. And what would happen is that the, the you can certainly get that, this capability in any building. And what it comes down to is as a consumer, as somebody who is using an iPhone owner as yourself and uh, others, essentially walking into a building without actually realizing that uh, the, this technology is there. So maybe you're not expecting to uh, be tracked indoors uh, uh, in a particular building, but because you had it on for a different purpose, uh, suddenly you are actually being tracked and your information, your location, your your shopping uh patterns are being aggregated. Uh, certainly, this is kind of the, the scenarios that we would try to avoid, but they're actually possible right now with relative ease uh, as to uh, and little instrumentation to a particular building. That's what makes it so uh, scary to me. And to uh, just interject a little something for uh, more technical people who might be listening, Ultra-wideband is not so much a new technology, it's been around for a while, but rather the chips implementing the technology are new, or somewhat new. And what really is the key here is not so much the technology, but the players. And what it has taken is major players to look at this technology and take it seriously and introduce it. So Apple is a really major player in the phone market. Cisco is a really major player in networking equipment. And once these and other big players have taken this technology and essentially endorsed it by including it in their products, that is, I think, the real catalyst for what it takes for this to become ubiquitous. So late last year, the New York Times Privacy Project ran a really interesting story about phone pings. 
Um, and we'll put that uh, a link to that up on the show notes. Um, Colleen, what did we learn from that story? Basically, what happened with that story is the New York Times got a hold of this really detailed data set that included high fidelity location information for millions of phone devices in a number of U.S. cities. And I think most people who consider themselves relatively tech savvy wouldn't be surprised that their location is being tracked. But what is surprising is the extent and accuracy of the tracking that the New York Times uncovered. So how this tracking works, I think the article refers to these as phone pings. And how it works is that an app that you installed requests access to your location data. So for example, a weather app. And the app is going to use the data the way that you expect it to, to look up the weather in your location. But after that, sometimes they'll send your location to a third-party company. And the reason that they would want to do that is because this third-party company is willing to pay the app developers for that data about you. So the free app, they could be making money by selling your location data. And it turns out that this is perfectly legal. And in fact, the practice is so common that these data sets are really quite detailed. And the companies that pay for this location data are then gonna make money themselves by doing research on that data and selling the research findings to advertisers or even by just straight up selling the raw data set to advertisers. And these location brokers claim that the data is anonymous, uh, but with access to the raw data set, it's really easy to infer who actually owns a device. So. The example I would give is if you have somebody that has a nine to five job, they're going to spend most of their time at home and at the office. And even though multiple people might live in the same building or work at the same address, most of the time you're not going to have the same person both living at one address and working at that same, a different address. So by being able to figure out where they work and where they live, it's really likely that you can infer who this person is exactly. And if that wasn't quite enough data, well, you've got this very large data set to hone it down and figure it out anyway. And these companies that are owning these data sets aren't interested in tracking who you are exactly. They're not going to directly use it to spy on you over time. But the fact that they have this data and it's unregulated is scary, uh, especially considering that most people wouldn't knowingly allow location, permission, location permissions for any app that is enabling this underground location tracking ecosystem. So up to this point, the capability uh, within your phone has been able to send this information about where you go outside, but not necessarily within buildings and, and now with the advent of, of, uh, of this new technology being put into uh, newer phones, conceivably, these companies will have that data too. Yeah, it's definitely conceivable that, you know, whoever is able to tell you where you are within the store could then forward that information to some sort of third party uh, information, location information broker. 
This is Cookies, a podcast about technology, security, and privacy. We're speaking with Jan Schwarzneider, Assistant Professor and Faculty Fellow at New York University, and Colleen Josephson, a PhD student in electrical engineering at Stanford University. This is our final episode of the season. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Let's get back to our conversation with Jan and Colleen, in which they discuss steps we can take to increase our privacy. So, Jan, I mean, how does this threaten to disrupt societal norms? That's a great question and uh, certainly uh, something that we should uh, be looking at in terms of those technologies introducing to our daily life and we have our own societal expectations of how things are and now they provide uh, new capabilities for third-party actors to actually kind of get uh, information about us in places that we might not uh, expect. Uh, we shouldn't say that you know GPS or outdoor tracking is certainly something that uh, is acceptable. Uh, it certainly should be considered uh, acceptable with a particular in a particular context. And similarly, indoors, so as we were discussing now, it provides more fine-grained information about location. So you might not uh, realize that now that when you go into a shopping mall or somebody else in, in your building, you're, you are being tracked and uh, to a very, very fine-grained manner. So the thing is, uh, your expectations probably are not aligned with what this technology brings and many other technologies. Uh, the risks here, uh, which essentially we feel like without a proper discussion, we actually are exposing ourselves is something that privacy scholars and philosophers call the tyranny of the normal. Essentially, we get into a, 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 when Apple introduced something like this and endorsed this technology, big, big players, suddenly it becomes normal that you're being tracked inside. And if you, you are not tracked, then you, you, you're basically missing out on some of the capabilities. When those things are placed in in front of the public, the, the normality of this uh, is basically uh, uh, the, the expectations already shaped, saying, well, we're already using this and it has some benefits. We cannot actually discount that. But there is certainly a risk of exposing some information about uh, information flows from those technologies that current public are not uh, used to and probably not expecting. The risk here is they as those technologies be more pervasive, that we get essentially uh, kind of, uh, uh, well, we'll essentially get used to them. And that becomes a problem for a regulator then to essentially uh, make it, uh, uh, you know, have a, a tougher regulation against it. So we have to be very careful how they introduce and how we, and the debate we have, we should have it now, in particular, as, as Colleen was rightly saying, that the big players and the ones that we know so we know the Apple, we know we know Cisco uh, from a technology side, but there is a whole uh, ecosystem of other players which arguably supporting this move because it provides them so much more information that they can feed off their networks. And this is something that uh, we, as consumers, we should be aware of. Part of this is what we did with Colleen is provide this, uh, uh, this uh, write-up uh, in a blog post, but Ultimately, it's up to the regulators to be aware of this and, and get ahead of it before we move on. And, and this technology becomes so pervasive that we essentially won't be looking back. It really reminds me of the, uh, the facial recognition uh, technology debate uh, that we're having right now. It's on the same par uh, if, if, if we can compare the two. Mm. So what can individual consumers do to protect themselves right now? Is there some sort of setting 
so that I can change on my phone to keep it from tracking me like that? Uh, yeah. So I'd say before turning things off, the, the first step is going to be awareness. So if a company is giving you an app for free, they still have to make money somehow. And the most common way is going to be showing you ads. And this location data is a really valuable metric for pushing those ads. So take a moment to think, sure, it's convenient that Facebook can automatically tag my location in posts, but the trade-off is going to be that that information will be used to serve ads to me. Some people are okay with that, but many others don't realize this and it actually creeps them out. So the first step is going to be taking the time to notice things. So, huh, this app seems to know what my location is. Am I okay with that? And if not, you need to look into changing your settings. There are two levels of settings that are involved with phone location data. The first is gonna be system-wide settings, which basically turns location services on or off for all apps. It's, it's kind of similar to airplane mode. And there's also gonna be per application settings, which would let you, for example, prohibit Facebook from knowing your location, but continue to allow your map program to know where you are. So per application settings are going to be specific to that application's setting menu. System-wide settings are going to be in your phone's setting menu. And that's going to, you know, how you change those is unfortunately going to differ from phone manufacturer to phone manufacturer, even change based off of your operating system. And I think that, you know, it's important for consumers to consider what to do to protect themselves, but that puts kind of undue burden on everyday people. A lot of the companies today, a lot of the manufacturers of the devices and different operating systems say, well, don't worry about it. If you worry about your privacy, we have all the controls in there for you to change and make sure that you prevent us from collecting this data. Uh, but we cannot expect a uh, day-to-day uh, uh, -day consumer essentially navigate this uh, this uh, landscape of different settings that, by the way, change all the time. And in fact, it's it's pretty hopeless, even if you, as Kalin was ready to say, sometimes you will change one setting, but actually you will have to change a few settings to make sure that one app doesn't collect, one app doesn't collect, the other one uh, doesn't share and so forth. In fact, uh, in part of our, our other research that we worked on, we found that apps actually sometimes share locations between them. So mm -hmm. things like that really leave a consumer in a place where certainly you can be aware of things, uh, but if uh, this whole ecosystem is ge uh, geared towards getting your location, uh, it pretty much has all the information from not necessarily the chips like GPS that can get it from from your uh, from your network, uh, IP address, and, and so forth. So there's different ways of doing that. So they pretty much get your location if they want to. Uh, it's important, I think, for us to uh, essentially push uh, uh, a way for those companies not to offer our control of our privacy, but really respect our privacy. And the difference is that uh, we have societal norms, we have expectations, those things should be violated. Uh, and right now, it's 
as Colina was saying, the burden is on us to make sure that the, the inappropriateness of those information flows um, essentially doesn't doesn't continue, which is uh, really not realistic uh, given the, the number of apps we are using. And sometimes because of the complexity, sometimes, you know, location, location collection or location provides useful benefits and you might use and forget that you have it on and suddenly this there's a bunch of uh, uh, apps that are just like pounce on it and straight away you're losing that particular information. So just to finish off in terms of saying uh, privacy is not about secrecy. Privacy is not about data minimization. Uh, it's about appropriate of information flow uh, and that appropriateness is really defined uh, by the uh, societal norms in particular context. And if we all together as, uh, as a community push towards that, that's where the regulation should go to make sure that the, those things are respected. And right now, unfortunately, that's far from, uh, from the case because uh, of the different kind of uh, angles on privacy. Well, we don't share your personal information or we only share public, public information at, or as we were discussing this New York Times uh, article, well, it's all an, uh, anonymous. It's, it's really not about you. Well, uh, really, uh, uh, ultimately, you are being exposed and, and this is something that we should be really worried about and hopefully we'll, we'll get to do something about it too. Yeah, to add to that, it's become our unfortunate responsibility to read these really long and impenetrable license agreements and to be in charge of investigating what an app will and won't do with our data in detail. And this is really asking a lot of people, especially people who are maybe not as technically adept as others. And the unfortunate result is that people are again and again surprised often unpleasantly so, about how their data ends up being used. So how can we construct policy so that people don't end up being surprised that their data is used in certain ways? And I just, uh, if I may have a plug uh, on this, specifically in this particular issue of people being surprised about the data. Uh, and this comes down to uh, a lot of the work we're doing with with legal scholars and uh both at CATP at Princeton, as well as uh, uh, at NYU and Cornell Tech, as, as long as the wider privacy community, in terms of pushing towards uh, understanding privacy as contextual integrity. For a long time, today, as Colleen was mentioned, we have this notion of uh, informed consent, right? So the companies provide you with a lot of information, well, with some information in privacy policy in a very cumbersome way. And we, we've showed, among many other works, that this really doesn't work. The consumer is not informed. The way this privacy policy has written are not really informing. And sometimes it's even more confusing uh, the, 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 the reader. So really, uh, the idea here is if you define privacy as contextual integrity and you will try to build your uh, systems around that notion, you, you move away from uh, those dichotomies of public and private or personal, non-personal towards something that is re respect of societal norms that uh, earlier on we were, we were discussing how those technologies are, uh, are disrupting each time. And this is unfortunately not the case at the moment because the legal system is not geared towards looking at privacy that way. Uh, but hopefully through podcasts like this one or, and through our work, we can certainly move, move towards that direction. One thing that we discussed in the blog post is the possibility of these ads literally following you home. And it's 
kind of creepy at, well, a lot of what we talked about is, but there's already technology out there. There's a company called Five Tier that has a, uh, systems that update the ads in Times Square in real time based off of a stream of data from nearby cell phones. And that data is combined with personal information collected from passersby from the data brokers, like the ones the New York Times article described. So, you know, we're already seeing personalized ads that can follow us down the sidewalk. So imagine how much more tense that could get once the location data is one to two orders of magnitude more accurate. So you could actually see billboards as you drive down the street that are aimed right at you? Yeah, that is uh, yeah. something that this yeah. would enable. And then you get home and you log on to your web browser. And depending on how this data ecosystem ends up sharing your information, you know, it could follow you all the way home um, back to your web browser. Mm. Exciting scary, stuff. It's a scary world out there. <laughs> well, for, for, for some, I guess for some, it's like here is a great business. But uh, yeah, we certainly uh, we should be aware of those. And uh, <laughs> Uh, like Colleen was saying, uh, quite a few, because we didn't put everything, but we had quite a few discussion on, on, on kind of giving examples of what actually already exists, right? It's not something that, uh, it's not, it's kind of sounds from the future, but it's it's not, it's here. Yeah, uh, I think and, it, privacy um, advocates kind of get a reputation for fear mongering, but uh, <laughs> this is already, you know, the, the, the pieces are in place. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like uh, uh, the privacy advocates, I'm sure, I mean, I consider, uh, you know, privacy scholars, uh, they're more of a kind of, let's see what happens, but, uh, and what are the benefits of it? And what are the, you know, both sides? Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, the, the reality is that we as consumers or, or society are not being even consulted. So there's a lot of power, as we mentioned, uh, in those big companies. So if they decide, that they go for it, this, this technology, and there's nothing to stop them or not even a way for them to hesitate, suddenly uh, you, you certainly will be in the world which you have to get used to, that you walk down Times time Square and every ad in there that you, or a billboard will, will, will try to reveal your desires or whatever your, your last shopping uh, list was or something, uh, not explicitly, but maybe, you know, suggestively and that's something i feel a lot of people are not going to be okay but at that time i think it will be a little that we can do because the technologies will be there anyway so we should we should this this helps i think to some degree yeah i think people have gotten used to trading access to free things for being advertised at but i think what has happened over time is that people are definitely not as aware uh what sort of sensitive information is going into serving advertisements to them. There's a really big difference between watching an ad that everybody else sees the same ad on, uh, for example, uh, broadcast TV versus something that's hyper-personalized to you. It makes, me, makes it really feel like you're being spied on. Okay, finally, uh, how has COVID-19 changed the ultra-wideband space? Uh, Colleen? Yeah, so... We've all started to hear a lot about contact tracing. And the old-fashioned way involves a person interviewing you to find out all the places you've been and the people that you've been near since becoming contagious. But there's also been a lot of conversation around technology-based contact tracing. So 
using our phones to track which other phones that we've been near. Current phone-based contact tracing does not actually use ultra-wideband. Ultra-wideband is basically the ideal technology to implement this because it's really good at finding out exactly how far away you are from other ultra-wideband chips. But the problem is an adoption rate. Not enough phones yet have ultra-wideband chips because Apple was the first. So um, Apple and Google have fallen back to using Bluetooth, which Bluetooth technology currently is in every single phone, smartphone at least, even though it's less accurate. Um, however, what this has done is there's new technology under development using ultra-wideband to try and enforce social distancing and doing contact tracing. So there's some companies that have started working on wristbands that beep when employees get too close. And then they report the location data back to a centralized database so that if somebody gets sick, employers can query it to notify workers who came close to the person with a positive case. Um, or in other cases, you can wear, instead of a wristband, wear it around your neck. Um, this particular company calls their device the distancer, which I thought was kind of funny because it sounds a little bit like what you'd name your sword in, in an, a role-playing game. Uh, I'll, I'll add to this, uh, if I may. Uh, towards, this is an interesting... So we, when we were writing this blog post, we uh, certainly didn't uh, see the pandemic coming and uh, COVID-19 and all the discussion about contract tracing certainly brought uh, our attention towards... Uh, you know, how this ultra-wideband space can be utilized. And in fact, I feel there's a great example of how the technology can actually help. There's a lot of benefits. It's called outline. It's actually pretty accurate. And it can certainly bring, uh, you know, towards this con uh, common good uh, towards understanding, get, keep us, our, our, our community healthier. However, there's a lot of questions that you should be asking without before jumping uh, into this uh, and adopting it. First of all, uh, and we actually talked about this among ourselves is really understanding the notion of where, what happens when the disaster is over, when what happens when the pandemic is over. And if from our own research, we looked at uh, a similar case, again, without knowing that the pandemic and recently, uh, you know, we are published it uh, about uh, natural disasters, where also a similar situation arises when you have apps that help you survive or provide you with some benefits. But the question of when disaster ends is something that we haven't even figured out how our system systems and uh, will adjust. And this is something that is really crucial because as this fine-grained data is being collected and presumably helping us uh, get, get, getting through this pandemic, how this information is used after the disaster ends or even during, but all ultimately after. Uh, and, where, and there are quite a few examples out there from previous cases in natural disasters that uh, the, the information is being kept and used for other purposes. Yeah, even specifically related to other pandemics, there is an article that NPR published recently about South Korea failing to delete contact tracing data collected during a previous outbreak. So they said that they would delete it, but in fact, five years later, they still have it. So is that something that's going to happen if we have contact tracing data here? Or... Um, for example, if these employers do, in fact, invest in these wristbands to track your location information to enforce social distancing, the advantage is that we will feel safer going back to work. But 
your employer spent money on this system, when it's no longer strictly necessary, are they going to stop using it? Uh, probably not. I want to thank Jan Schwarzenegger, Assistant Professor and Faculty Fellow at New York University, and Colleen Josephson, a PhD student in Electrical Engineering at Stanford University. Their blog post is at Princeton's Freedom to Tinker blog, located free online. Here's a link from our show notes, available from our website at engineering.princeton.edu. Our recording engineer is Dan Kearns. Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes and other platforms. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. Thanks for listening. Peace.